It was early evening on January 24th, 41 CE. Cassius Cheria stormed into the Imperial Palace and headed straight for the Emperor's bedroom. Two other Praetorian guardsmen followed close behind him. Cassius and his conspirators had just killed Emperor Caligula, and before the news broke, there was one more thing to take care of. Every member of Caligula's bloodline had to be washed out so Rome could start anew. In the bedroom, they found Caligula's wife, Melonia Sezonia. Their two-year-old daughter, Julia, clutched tightly to her leg. With trembling hands, Melonia pushed her child away. She outstretched her neck and told Cassius to kill her quickly. Cassius granted her that courtesy. When her body dropped to the floor, Cassius turned his attention to two-year-old Julia, Caligula's only child. Cassius smashed her head into a marble pillar, killing her instantly. Next, he and his cohorts searched the palace for the former emperor's last surviving uncle, Claudius. They found him cowering behind a curtain. Cassius lifted his sword, and his fellow soldiers stopped him. It had just occurred to them that Claudius might be more useful alive than dead. One death can change the world. At least that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode on Emperor Caligula, who was killed by the commander of his personal bodyguard, Cassius Cheria, in 41 CE. Last week, we followed Caligula's rise to power and the events leading up to his murder at the hands of Cassius and his co-conspirators. Today, we'll look at the aftermath of the murder, Cassius's fate, and how the world today might be different if Caligula had lived. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com merch for more information. On January 24th, 41 CE, Emperor Caligula was attacked by the head of his Praetorian guard, Cassius Cheria, and a handful of co-conspirators. Rome's 28-year-old emperor was stabbed 23 times and left for dead in the dark underground tunnels that led to the palace. But there was still another important step to take care of before the plan was finished. The conspirators had to make sure there was no one left alive from Caligula's family who could make a claim for the throne. After mercilessly disposing of Caligula's wife and daughter, Cassius turned his sword on the former emperor's uncle, Claudius. Claudius was around 50 years old and considered the family embarrassment. While his brother Germanicus was strong and charismatic, Claudius was weak, had a permanent limp, and spoke with a stutter. Modern scholars have theorized that he suffered from cerebral palsy or Tourette's syndrome. 
But during his childhood, the royal family thought Claudius's afflictions were caused by sheer stupidity and laziness. He was, more or less, locked up in the metaphorical attic of the imperial palace while his brothers and nephews vied for power. As Cassius loomed over the crying, shaking Claudius, one of his fellow Praetorian guards, Gratus, told him to put down his sword. It might be the family outcast's turn in the spotlight. Even before the assassination, there had been disagreements among the conspirators about who would take Caligula's place. The senators and the Praetorians involved all wanted a say in Rome's future. But being men of action, it was the Praetorians, led by Gratus, who made the first move. As Cassius stepped back, Gratus and a few other Praetorians seized Claudius to take him back to their camp just outside of Rome. Their goal was to install the weak, inexperienced old man as a puppet emperor who would do anything the soldiers wanted. Claudius had never held any political office until a few years earlier, when Caligula appointed him as his co-counsel as a joke. Claudius's main duty was to stay nearby in case Caligula needed someone to play pranks on or humiliate in front of the Senate. But there would definitely be no laughter as the Praetorians led Claudius out of the imperial palace and through the streets. News had already begun to spread that Caligula was dead, and the citizens were in shock and disbelief. Political news traveled at a snail's pace in the first century CE. Even though the ruling class knew Caligula was piloting the empire into financial ruin, the average Roman citizen still saw him as the generous, humble son of Germanicus, who was appointed four years earlier. The mood was tense as Cassius and his fellow Praetorians hurried out of the city. Every moment that passed without an emperor posed the threat to their plan. If the Senate moved more quickly, the Praetorians might lose their grip on power. When they reached the Praetorian camp just before sunset, there was a discussion amongst the ranks about the fate of Uncle Claudius. Some of the soldiers weren't on board with the plan. They believed they should kill him and let the Senate decide who would rule next. Others agreed that by putting Claudius on the throne, a man that nearly everyone perceived as a dunce, they could successfully use him as a puppet and take control of the entire empire. There was some pushback from soldiers who argued that this was the same tactic they tried and failed to use with Caligula. The heated debates continued into the night with no resolution in sight. But back at the Senate House, the senators were close to being in complete agreement by the time the sun rose the next morning. With Caligula dead and no apparent heir, they saw an opportunity to restore the Republic and be rid of emperors once and for all. Before Caligula's great-grandfather, Augustus, became emperor in 27 BCE, Rome's political power was divided between two consuls, the Senate, and three voting assemblies, with checks and balances between each branch of government. During Julius Caesar's reign, from 49 to 44 BCE, he slowly turned Rome into a dictatorship. The change became official when Augustus took power and reformed the constitution, making himself the first Roman emperor. 
a return to a Republican government would put more power into the Senate's hands, so that quickly became the most popular plan amongst the senators after Caligula's death. But the Praetorian guards were making plans of their own, and they were moving with haste. Just 24 hours after Caligula's death, on the afternoon of June 1st, a pair of burly Praetorians grabbed a bewildered Claudius and carried him to a tall wooden platform. Claudius was sure he was about to meet the same end as his slaughtered nephew. Looking out over the hundreds of soldiers at the camp, he prepared himself to accept his death. But to Claudius's shock, every single one of the Praetorians dropped to one knee and proclaimed their undying loyalty to him, their new emperor. The Praetorians told him they were going to lead him back into Rome and convince the Senate to appoint him as emperor. But before they did, there was one little thing to take care of, arresting Cassius for the murder of Caligula. A handful of soldiers led Cassius to the stockade, assuring him that it was only a formality. They had to project the illusion of justice so the Senate didn't grow suspicious. But once Claudius was crowned, Cassius would walk free. But as Cassius's neck was snapped into the stockade, he realized he'd become a pawn in a much larger game. He'd planned the assassination, recruited the participants, and struck the fatal blow. But while he was focused on getting revenge against Caligula, his accomplices had their own plans to advance their own power. And now, Cassius was taking the blame, while his more prominent co-conspirators reaped the rewards. He might go the same way as Navius Sertorius Macro, the praetorian who'd killed Tiberius, only to face his own execution by Caligula. When the Praetorian guards reached the Senate with Claudius in tow, they heard out the Senate's request for a return to a republic. But they didn't seriously consider negotiating. The military faction had been amassing political influence throughout Caligula's reign, and they were ready to cash in every bargaining chip they held to make sure Claudius was crowned emperor. And where politics failed, they had physical force. At the tips of freshly sharpened swords, the Senate agreed to let the Praetorians have their way. The senators had only one request in return. They wanted to make sure that Claudius wouldn't prosecute any of Caligula's murderers, many of whom were members of the Senate. The Praetorians eagerly obliged, since many of the assassins were from their own ranks as well. Claudius agreed too. He was fully ready to forgive the men who'd killed his brat of a nephew. So, on September 2nd, 41 CE, Claudius, the most unlikely of men, was made the fourth emperor of Rome. While Caligula's body was still being embalmed, Claudius was being fitted for his laurels. When news of the agreement reached the Praetorian camp, Cassius was released from the stockade. He breathed a sigh of relief as he walked back to his quarters where his fellow soldiers were waiting to celebrate him. After a lifetime of service to the Roman Empire, Cassius felt that killing Caligula was the greatest deed he ever performed. Still, he prepared his weapons and equipment so that he could return to service as soon as possible. During the first days of Claudius's reign, 
he revealed himself to be much more intelligent than he appeared. Many of the men who'd appointed him had never bothered to learn who Claudius really was or what he knew. Being a social pariah throughout his entire life, Claudius had ample time to sharpen a weapon even more deadly than a sword, his mind. He was an impressive scholar, and his subject of choice was history. In fact, one of the reasons he'd been shunned from public life was that he was too critical of the reigning emperor Augustus. This was a revelation to both the Senate and the Praetorian Guard. As soon as Claudius took power, he set to work undoing all the corruption Caligula had normalized. Being so familiar with the past, he was too wise to repeat the mistakes that had gotten his predecessors killed. Within weeks, Rome's power players realized how wrong they were in mistaking Claudius for a buffoon. The new emperor didn't waste any time in proving what kind of ruler he was going to be. Immediately after assembling his circle of advisors, Claudius's first command was for the Praetorian Guard to bring him the man who killed Caligula, Cassius Cheria. Up next, we'll find out Cassius's fate. Now, back to the story. A few weeks after Caligula's assassination on January 24, 41 CE, Cassius Cheria, in his full Praetorian Guard regalia, was seized by his fellow soldiers. He was marched in front of the new emperor, Claudius, whom Cassius had inadvertently helped rise to power. Cassius locked eyes with the new ruler. Seated on his throne, his weak stature and shaky knees weren't so apparent. He looked as regal and handsome as his late brother, Germanicus. Claudius was so calm and confident, his infamous stutter was barely apparent as he read out loud from a tablet. He declared that Cassius Cheria, the one and only assassin of former Emperor Caligula, was to be tried for murder. Claudius held up his agreement not to seek prosecution for any of Cassius's co-conspirators, but history had taught him that he shouldn't let the lead assassin go free. It would set a bad precedent that anyone could openly slay an emperor and get away with it. After a speedy trial, Cassius was found guilty of murdering Caligula, his wife, and his daughter. His punishment was death. We don't know the exact day or method of Cassius's execution, but it was sometime shortly after Caligula's assassination in 41 CE. He was the only person ever arrested or tried for the crime. In the months and years following his rise to power, Claudius began to make big changes. Recognizing that the den of vipers around him had been shaken by Cassius's execution, Claudius took the opportunity to begin stripping away their power. He started with the Senate. Claudius gave more of a governmental role to the freedmen, a class of former slaves who had earned their freedom. Giving the freedmen a voice in politics helped check the power and ambitions of the noble-born senators. It also ensured that the freedmen, with all their newfound power, would stay loyal to Claudius if anyone attempted to overthrow him. As for the Praetorians, Claudius kept them too busy to plot conspiracies by sending them out of the city on an endless string of conquests across Europe. Shortly after assuming power, 
Claudius sent a ship to the Pontine Islands to free his last two living nieces, Caligula's sisters Julia Livia and Agrippina the Younger. It was probably a gesture of good public relations. Caligula had exiled them for allegedly plotting to overthrow him. By bringing the women back to Rome, Claudius was demonstrating that he wanted to distinguish himself from Caligula in every way possible. Nearly everyone was surprised that the man once dismissed as an idiot was turning out to be such a strong and effective leader. With some wise advisors at his side, Claudius was even able to reverse the empire's financial troubles. He won favor from the common citizens by solving one of Rome's greatest challenges, grain distribution. With an empire as vast as Rome, it was difficult to make sure each town received enough grain stores to survive during droughts. The inefficient distribution system and the angry mobs that resulted had been a headache for every emperor since Augustus. Claudius made it a top priority to fix the issue once and for all. He began by investing in infrastructure, ordering new roads to be built along with new harbors so grain could be moved along waterways. He also instituted strict rations to make sure there was enough for every citizen. By 48 CE, Claudius was celebrated by all of Rome for returning the empire to its former glory. But while his professional life was soaring sky high, his personal life was hitting rock bottom. In around 48 CE, Claudius's marriage to his third wife, Valeria Messalina, ended when she married her secret lover. To add injury to insult, the remarriage was also an attempt to overthrow Claudius as emperor. Valeria Messalina had planned to marry her lover while Claudius was away from Rome and simply tell everyone that as acting empress, she was going to appoint her lover as the new emperor. Suffice to say, her plan failed spectacularly. When Claudius found out, he had both Valeria and her lover executed for treason. After that debacle, Claudius had to find a new wife. He was presented with many, many options, but he eventually landed on his niece and Caligula's sister, Agrippina the Younger. The decision outraged most of Rome's citizens who saw the union as incest. But power and popularity had gone to Claudius's head. He did nothing to quash the outrage. Nor was he able to stop Agrippina from reviving the family traditions of scheming and backstabbing. After the marriage, Agrippina persuaded Claudius to adopt her only son, Nero, as his heir. Once he agreed, her next step was to get Claudius out of the way and let her loyal son ascend to the throne. She succeeded. Claudius was poisoned to death on October 13, 54 CE. He was 63 years old. Nero, just 16 years old, was now the emperor of Rome. Agrippina hoped to control his every move from behind the scenes. But despite his youth, Nero was quickly growing into his own man, a man that would be vengeful and vindictive against the mother who sought to control him. After a year of intense power struggles and personal conflicts, Nero expelled Agrippina from the imperial palace in 55 CE and exiled her to the countryside. 
Agrippina still tried to meddle in her son's affairs from the outskirts of Rome. Just three years later, in 59 CE, Nero had had enough. He covertly attempted to kill her by sending her a self-destructing boat. Agrippina barely survived the shipwreck and managed to swim ashore, so Nero sent some sailors to finish her off. They found the battered Agrippina back at her home in the countryside. The sailors beat her bloody, and with her dying breath, she told them to stab her in the womb, the womb that bore the monster Nero. Emperor Tiberius once quipped that governing Rome was like holding a wolf by the ears. But just as often, the emperor was the wolf, and the Roman Empire was desperately holding its grip. Without the influence of his mother, the 21-year-old Nero was set loose like a wild animal, destroying anything in his path. In 64 CE, what became known as the Great Fire blazed through Rome. Over the course of six days, the flames destroyed much of the city. It was widely reported by historical sources that Nero himself had started the fire, although there was disagreement about his motivations. A year later, a conspiracy of statesmen plotted to assassinate Nero. He found out about the plan and had the conspirators executed. But Nero couldn't outrun his detractors forever. In 68 CE, the governor of Gallia Lugdunensis in modern-day France led an armed rebellion against Nero. Amid the chaos, the entire Praetorian Guard abandoned the imperial palace and the Senate declared Nero a public enemy. Nero, too afraid to live but too afraid to commit suicide, forced his personal secretary to kill him. The last ruler of Caligula's family line was finally dead and the Julio-Claudian dynasty came to an end. After Nero, emperors would rise and fall for nearly 400 years until the Roman Empire's end in 476 CE. Some rulers were good, some were bad, but none became as notorious as Caligula. Given Caligula's reputation for insanity during his lifetime, Accounts of his antics only became more and more outlandish over the centuries. Due to Roman records being lost or destroyed over the course of its history, it's hard to separate the truth from the fiction. Whether or not the surviving stories are accurate, Caligula's name has become synonymous with depravity and excess. With that kind of reputation, his life has been perfect fodder for storytellers for nearly 2,000 years. Robert Graves' 1934 novel, I, Claudius, portrays Caligula as a cold-blooded, megalomaniacal murderer. Albert Camus' absurdist play, Caligula, published a decade later, imagines the emperor as a suicidal philosopher who willfully manipulates the conspirators into killing him. But the most notorious portrayal of the Mad Emperor's reign is the 1979 film Caligula. In the early 1970s, the life and times of Caligula piqued the interest of Bob Guccione, publisher of the adult magazine Penthouse. Bob, no stranger himself to living life without limits, became obsessed with bringing the story to the silver screen. 
His vision was to make a biopic about Caligula that blended the high-budget splendor of a Hollywood production with the graphic sex of pornography films. Sparing no expense, he hired one of the most acclaimed writers in America to pen the script, a man already famous for bringing history to life on the stage and screen, Gore Vidal. The two men didn't exactly share the same vision. Guccione intended the film to be an elaborate mega-budget porno. Fadal, on the other hand, wanted to take a more serious look at how absolute power drove Caligula into madness. Even more concerning, the script he delivered contained several gay sex scenes and only one heterosexual scene, which was incestuous. Not good news for Guccione's target audience of penthouse subscribers. After a series of long and vicious arguments, which culminated in Vidal telling Time magazine that the film's directors were, quote, parasites, Vidal was axed, and the film's director, Tinto Brass, rewrote the script into a more lighthearted heterosexual political satire. The cameras finally started rolling in 1976 with Peter O'Toole, Malcolm McDowell, and Helen Mirren starring as Tiberius, Caligula, and Melonia Sezonia, respectively. By most accounts, the production was a disaster. Bob Guccione perhaps channeled a bit of Caligula himself, continually harassing the director, Tinto Brass, into including hardcore, unsimulated sex scenes. When Brass refused, Guccione snuck back onto the set with a skeleton crew and shot the scenes himself. When the film was released in 1979, it was immediately as infamous as the emperor it was based on. Due to its explicit sex scenes, it received an X rating from the MPAA and many countries banned it entirely. The film was panned by critics, but it became the highest grossing independently produced pornographic film of all time, grossing $23 million at the box office, worth nearly $72 million today. It became something of a cult classic, and the name Caligula was reintroduced to American pop culture. The saga of the film's troubled production is eerily reminiscent of the feuds, betrayals, and power grabs that plagued the Imperial Palace. If Caligula had been alive to see it, he might have been proud to see that his legacy was still alive. Or he might be enraged that his legacy was cut short by a band of assassins, most of whom were never punished. He may have wished he'd just stayed in bed on the morning of the Palatine Games. Coming up, we'll look at what the world might have been like if Caligula avoided Cassius Cherea's assassination attempt. Now, back to the story. The actions of just a few can affect the entire course of history. Let's examine what might have happened if Caligula hadn't been killed on January 24th, 41 CE. On the morning of the Palatine Games, Caligula woke up feeling terribly ill. His bodyguards and attendants tried to convince him to make an appearance at the games, but their fussiness only made the emperor suspicious. Convinced something was afoul, Caligula went back to bed and told everyone to leave him alone. Cassius panicked. His assassination plan was already in motion. He left his post to meet with his accomplices. While he was gone, 
his fellow Praetorian and co-conspirator Gratus realized the plan was unraveling. There was only one way to save his own skin. He told Caligula about Cassius's assassination plan. When Cassius came back, he found Caligula protected by a dozen Praetorian guards. He met Gratus's eyes and instantly knew he was a traitor. Caligula laughed and ordered the guards to arrest Cassius and all his co-conspirators. After a speedy trial, Caligula ordered Cassius to a painful and humiliating death by torture. As a preventative measure, he ordered the Praetorian Guard to be decentralized from their camp in Rome. If even his most trusted bodyguards could plot to overthrow him, perhaps the military had been given too much power to begin with. Caligula set sail for Egypt, as he'd intended to do for a while. From the safety of foreign shores, he ruled for the rest of his natural lifespan and ran the Roman Empire directly into the ground. At the time of his death, Caligula's negligence had already led Rome into financial ruin. It was only Claudius's reforms that brought the empire back from the brink of collapse. It's quite possible that if Caligula had continued to rule for decades, he may have been the third and final emperor of Rome. But it's equally possible that, even from the safety of Egypt, Caligula wouldn't have lasted much longer. His chronic health problems might have led him to an early natural death, or the Senate or Praetorian Guard might have sent a team of assassins to track him down and get rid of him. Even if Caligula had died without leaving an heir, it's likely that, in different circumstances, Claudius wouldn't have been chosen to succeed him. The choice to use Claudius as a puppet ruler was made by Cassius's Praetorian conspirators. Many of the other Praetorians and most of the Senate strongly disagreed with the plan. Without the pressure from the Praetorian Guard, the Senate might have succeeded in their original plan of reverting Rome's government to a republic. The strict term limits and division of power set out by the original constitution of the Roman Republic would have prevented another dangerous dictator like Caligula from gaining power. More authority would be placed back in the hands of the Senate and other legislative bodies. But this might not have been a return to the glory days. There's been much debate among historians about what would have happened if Rome had continued as a republic. But the prevailing theory is that it would have collapsed at the speed of light. The same corruption and intrigue we saw in Caligula's circle were also a mainstay of Rome's earlier years. But while an emperor can easily be assassinated by a few wily conspirators, the Republic's political struggles were much bigger in scale and much bloodier. In the years leading up to Augustus's rule, Civil wars within the ever-growing empire were a regular occurrence. Without a single, long-term leader to take the reins, rival senators, governors, and generals constantly battled for dominance, usually duking it out with armed militias. Appointing one emperor to run the show was actually much more stable. After all, if they proved to be too unqualified to rule, they could be removed with the flick of an assassin's knife. 
Reverting to a republic probably would have thrust Rome back into instability, leading to an even quicker collapse than they were facing under Caligula's rule. Even if the Senate had realized the flaw in their plan and appointed another emperor after Caligula, there's another factor worth considering. If the Praetorian Guard hadn't put Claudius forward as the next emperor, Claudius's wife wouldn't have plotted to overthrow him and steal the throne for her new lover. And in turn, Claudius never would have been remarried to Agrippina the Younger. She would have stayed on the remote island Caligula had exiled her to until her death. And without Agrippina around to pull the strings, her son Nero probably never would have become emperor either. This alone could have changed history in tremendous ways. During Nero's reign, he inadvertently shifted the course of one of the world's largest religions. As we mentioned earlier, in July of 64 CE, the Great Fire destroyed a large portion of Rome and killed countless citizens. The historical accounts of the fire vary. Most say that Nero ordered the fire to be set, but some writers were unsure about his involvement. Either way, one thing was certain. The citizens of Rome wanted a scapegoat for the tragedy, and Nero looked like the easiest choice. Desperate to take the suspicion off of himself, Nero pinned the blame on another target, Christianity. At the time, Christians were considered, in the words of Tacitus, quote, a class hated for their abominations, end quote. The religious sect, which was considered an offshoot of Judaism, was extremely small and extremely new. Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem just 30 years earlier. But the crucified man's surviving followers were so passionate about spreading his message that many in Rome considered them a nuisance, including Nero. And as the embers from the great fire turned to ashes, the emperor decided they were the perfect group to take the fall. From 64 CE onward, Nero persecuted, exiled, and executed every Christian that he could get his hands on. He had a lot of fun doing it, too. The most infamous story is that he set Christians on fire and used them as lamps for his dinner party. Others were mauled by lions or crucified. Notably, the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down to inflict even more pain. Nero's bloodlust was so severe, the Christians took to calling him the Antichrist. They referred to Nero by a secret code number so they could talk about him without fear of retribution. That code number was 666. While Nero didn't invent the concept of religious executions, he did invent the image of the Christian martyr. The elevation of spiritual status for the victims of the state's persecution actually helped bring more attention to the tiny religion, and it helped its disciples convert their fellow Romans to Christianity, even amidst the widespread hatred and violence. In order to escape the constant persecution, the Christians eventually fled from Rome, and in doing so, spread their teachings farther and faster than they could have if they'd been allowed to stay. Their message became so popular that just over 300 years after Nero's first wave of persecution, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire under Emperor Constantine. 
The embrace of Christianity in Rome led to the establishment of the Roman Catholic Church, and over time, the city-state of Vatican City, which still lies inside Rome's boundaries. Many historians believe that Caligula initially proclaimed himself a god as a joke. Given what we know about Caligula's sense of humor, that's an easy theory to believe. But taking jokes a bit too far is what got Caligula killed, and a much different god ended up getting the last laugh. For all his infamy, Caligula wasn't the first Roman ruler to be assassinated for his cruel and reckless behavior, and he wouldn't be the last. In fact, nearly every member of his family line met their end at the hands of a political assassin. Perhaps what's most surprising about his legacy is how little he actually changed in his years of tyranny. The damage Caligula did to Rome was undone by Claudius, only to be redone by Nero. The cycle of ups and downs continued for hundreds of years until the Roman Empire's eventual collapse. While certain contingencies might have led to slightly different outcomes, the truth is that even an emperor is no more than a tiny piece in a massive historical puzzle. And even an emperor's death might not be enough to change the world. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. If you're looking for more episodes or other stories of murder and crime, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. See you next Monday. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Sammy Sarzosa and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 